It is such a wonderful, wonderful thing for me to be with you. Thank you for allowing me to be with you for this wonderful occasion. Let's take our Bible, shall we, and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, my task and my assignment this evening is to begin the conference by preaching on the love of Christ displayed in the crosswork of Christ. Isaiah chapter 53 is a wonderful chapter, but I'm only going to read verses 4 through 6. Follow with me as I read from God's holy word. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, We are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Great God, we pray that you would minister your word powerfully, sovereignly, divinely deep into our hearts. That we would all submit ourselves under the authority of Your most holy Word. We pray that You would show us Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and verse 5, we read that Christ loved us and He gave Himself up for us. Even in the opening verses of the book of Revelation, we see the love of Christ and the crosswork of Christ intricately connected. They're inseparable. They're like two wheels on a bicycle that go together in unison. The Scottish preacher James Durham lived in the 17th century. He was fairly, he's an unknown Scottish Puritan. He died at the age of 36. Not very well known. He wrote a book, which actually is a compilation of 72 sermons on this one chapter, Isaiah chapter 53. 72 sermons. Spurgeon had this book on his shelf, and when you opened the front book, In Spurgeon's library of this book by James Durham, he said, this is a much prized book. James Durham in this work said, the reason why we press you to the study of Christ and all of His works is not only for you to have a clearer theology, but mainly that your hearts may be delighted in Christ. Because he said this, there is no more pleasant, more precious, and more profitable study than the person and work of Christ. But then James Durham said this, He 
he called his people for their good, he called his people to the intense beholding of Christ. Did you hear that? The intense beholding of Christ. That's my desire today. That is our desire for the weekend, that we would intensely behold Christ. And to begin the conference, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 53. It is the last of the four servant songs, as they're called that in Isaiah's book. We might call it the Gospel of Isaiah. Because according to a couple of German scholars in the 1800s, it looks as if Isaiah 53 was written at the very foot of the cross of Golgotha. Augustine said Isaiah 53 is not a prophecy, it's pure gospel. Polycarp said this is the golden passion of the Old Testament. This chapter contains the beautiful summary of the most peculiar and distinguishing doctrines of Christianity. It's like when you open the chapter and you read this, it's like a photograph of the cross. It's like Isaiah 53 is the Mount Everest, standing out in beauty and grandeur. Maybe we ought to take off our shoes, for the text right here before us is indeed holy ground. Why this chapter? Why, why did God give us this chapter? Why is this chapter before us this evening? Well, because the theme of the whole chapter, this servant song, is this. The innocent servant died in the place of guilty sinners. That's the whole point of the chapter. The innocent servant died in the place of guilty sinners. And oh, how wonderful it would be to go through this chapter in depth and look at all of the structure. Because what we are looking at tonight in verses 4 through 6 is actually the high point of the middle of this servant song. Which is actually the high point of the whole second half of the book of Isaiah. Which is a remarkable portion of Scripture. The work of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, was a voluntary work. It was a vicarious work. We might even say it was a violent work. It was a virtuous work. It was a victorious work. And I love how the Apostle Paul put it in the book of Galatians that the Son of God loved me and He gave Himself up for me. We want to see the exceeding love of Christ displayed in in the most tragic and triumphant place, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to show you the great love of the Lord Jesus Christ tonight as we look at the cross work of our Savior. And as we work through these verses, there's so much here and I have probably way too many points that we can get through in the time that is before us. But let's walk through this wonderful portion together and behold the love of Christ. Number one, if you're taking notes, just jot these simple headings down. Number one, let's first gaze upon the suffering work. This was a suffering work. The love of Christ was such a love that it endured suffering. The section is all about the vicarious sufferings of Jesus the Messiah. The innocent one dying for the guilty. 
It is, as the author of Hebrews put it, Christ's learning obedience through what He suffered. And here's what is the remarkable thing. We just sang about it, and we'll see it again in our text. That Jesus suffered for you. And maybe you're suffering in your life right now. Maybe a trial, maybe a hardship, maybe a difficulty. The one who suffered for you can relate to you in your suffering. Look at these verses again. Let's just read them briefly. Consider as we read them the sufferings of Christ. Verse 4, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging were healed. Then the end of verse 6, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. The love of Christ was such a love that it included a love to the point of suffering, enduring hardship. The prophets, according to 1 Peter 1.11, predicted the sufferings of Christ. And Peter himself even said that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, Luke writes, Jesus presented Himself alive after His suffering. So we might say that these verses in Isaiah 53 describe Messiah's death by suffering. How is the love of Christ displayed? First, we see it in a love to the point of suffering. And isn't this such a vital part of the Gospel message? It's the heart of the chapter that the innocent one dies as a sacrifice for sin. It's Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Consider the words that are here in these verses, that He was wounded. He was wounded for us. He was pierced by nails. He was crucified, which was not a Jewish form of execution. He was bruised, which means to be crushed under the weight of a burden. The burden, according to verse 6, that the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Christ the servant. And amazingly, He was innocent. Completely innocent. He died for iniquities and transgressions that were not His own. Remember how in Luke 24, 26, Jesus Himself preaching from the Old Testament about Himself, He said the Messiah must suffer these things and then enter into His glory. As we think, even just kind of in a big picture of these verses, verses 4 through 6, we have to realize that this great love of Christ is seen first in a suffering work. What a love. What an enduring love. What a volitional love. What a strong love. But not only is it a suffering work, if you're taking notes, you can jot this heading down. Number two, the love of Christ is seen second because it is a substitutionary work. It is a substitutionary work. 
And we see all through the verses here this little phrase, for us, for us, for us. I remember years ago, one of my children sinned and deserved a spanking. Another child came and said, I will take the spanking in their place. In their place? For them on their behalf? It's a central motif perhaps of the whole Bible for the doctrine of salvation that Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5. That Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. That He died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15.3. That Christ suffered for you, 1 Peter 2.21. That Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You know this. You've read this and you're well aware of this. But can I read it yet again with this emphasis in mind? Look again at verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore. And and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. End of verse 6. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. I mean, can you imagine that God took on human flesh Truly God, truly man, He came down, He suffered, He died, He lived a righteous life, was rejected of men, crucified, put on a cross in your place. Amen. For your benefit on your account. He took what you deserve. He died the death that you deserve to die. Alexander McLaren was writing on this, and here's what he said. You thought that he was afflicted because he was bad, and you were spared because you were good. He said, not so. He was afflicted because you were bad, and you were spared because he was afflicted. Don't you love those words, alas? And did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? We sang it here tonight in the opening hymns as well. This is the substitution of the Lord. This is the great work of God. This is God's great design. It's His great plan. It is the love of God revealed in A substitutionary work. It is a suffering work. It is a substitutionary work. But let's go a little bit deeper here in verse 4 specifically. Let's kind of zoom in a little bit on these verses. I want to give you a number 3 here. If you're taking notes, please get this. This is a very important part of the chapter. Number 3, it is a severe work. The love of Christ is revealed in the cross in that it was a severe work. 
You see, verse 4 tells us that our griefs He bore and our sorrows He carried, yet, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I mean, it's like a hot, raging fever that just crushes a soul. It's like a tsunami of divine rage, of hot anger, of unrelenting judgment for sin. It was divinely severe. It was so severe that souls in hell for endless eternities will never begin to understand the severity of that wrath because they could never exhaust the wrath of God. When Jesus came from heaven clothed in human flesh, He was a marked man. God singled Him out for punishment, but not for His own sin, but for the sins of His own people. God had both stricken Him and smitten Him and afflicted Him. And now look at verse 4. We have to look at the severe work in detail because the first word at the end of verse 4 there, we considered Him stricken. It is a Hebrew word that means to strike with violence. Stricken. Violently. The second word that Isaiah brings out in verse 4, smitten of God. The Hebrew word means to be crushed. It means to be ground to pieces. It means to be constantly hit. And in the Hebrew language, there are all these Hebrew forms for verbs, verbal forms, but there's one that is a most intensive verbal form. That's what's used right here. The servant was intensively crushed and smitten of God. Third, the third word right here, the end of verse 4, he was afflicted. It means to be humiliated. It means to be oppressed. And if you look carefully at each of those three words at the end of verse 4, they're all passive. God did the doing to the Son. God did the work to the Son. God did the severe work to His own Son because of the holiness of God and the determination of God to punish transgression and the evil nature of sin. We see here, don't we, God's perspective of sin and how He treated His own Son on the cross. Sin is anti-God. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is cosmic treason against God. Sin is serious. It is transgression. It is rebellion. It is daring to cross the line that God has drawn. And so many, I've seen it today on college campuses. I saw it on a high school campus. We saw it at Bush Stadium last night. We see it all around us. So many underestimate the severity of sin. And you know what? Just a few hours ago, we had high school students who were screaming at us in rage. And then they came up and we talked with them. Gospel conversations. Why? Because this is not making people feel good. 
you read verse 4. It doesn't make us feel good. There's nothing comfortable and seeker-friendly about it. Man has offended God. And God is angry with men. And the substitute was severely afflicted out of great love for you. What a Savior. One commentator said it was the the almost intolerable load of imputed sin, the imputed sins of countless millions of God's elect. It was the tremendous pouring out of the wrath of God into the holy soul of Jesus. It was the hiding of the Father's face. It was the very pangs of hell that caught hold of His soul. Our suffering Savior drank the cup of the wrath of God down to the very dregs. When our vile, dreadful, horrible sins were laid upon Him. That's love. That's love. You see, the words that have been used in this verse, transgressions, griefs, sorrows, iniquities, What is so remarkable about this God, the only true God, the God of Scripture, the God who is Lord over all, He is so good and He is so fair that He must punish sin infinitely and fully. I don't think we could even begin to understand the severity of this work. But we try. We try. This is a severe work that is so glorious to us because Jesus did it for us. One soul in hell will never fully exhaust the severity of God's wrath for endless eternities. And yet what love that Jesus could say it's finished for you. This great love of Christ is revealed in the cross. Let me give you a fourth heading as we continue to walk through this. Let's look at verse 5 here. Number 4, this is a saving work. You know that, 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 that hymn, What wondrous love is this, O my soul? O my soul, what wondrous love is this? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. You see the crushing there. We see the substitution there. We see in the verse that He is pierced through for our transgressions. This is what the Bible teaches. A thousand years before the Messiah Himself was even born, David said in Psalm 22 that Messiah would be pierced in His hands. He would be pierced in His side with a spear. Zechariah Chapter 12, verse 10 alludes and speaks to that. And the text says, in the middle of verse 5, do you see it after he was pierced through? He was, verse 5, crushed. Crushed. 
the weight of a burden, the weight of our sin, the weight of God's wrath. Crushed. I think you and I this evening, we can rejoice with Edward Payson, can't we? Was Christ wounded at the cross for our transgressions? Or were the iniquities of all of His people laid upon Him? Then, then He says, surely our iniquities shall never be laid upon us. Because Jesus in love has borne them and He has carried them all away. He was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What a saving work. You know, this cross work of Christ, which was accomplished in love, it actually achieves the salvation of all of God's people. It actually achieves and accomplishes the salvation for all of God's people. Maybe you're here today. Maybe teenager. Maybe boys and girls. Maybe men and women. Maybe church member. And maybe you've had kind of one of those weeks and you kind of reflect on yourself, kind of this introspective time, and you think, oh, am I even saved? I've sinned again. I've fallen into that sin again. And yet reflecting on such love of Christ in these verses, it ought to reassure us of the saving work of Christ not based upon your performance. We might even say away then with all unbelieving fears. And then, and then at the toward the end of verse five, Isaiah says the chastening for our well-being, for our well-being. It's the word shalom, the the full wholeness, the fullness of spiritual life and peace and fellowship with God. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him by. His scourging, we are healed. Quoted in Matthew chapter 8, connection with the healing ministry of Jesus. I don't have the authority to heal on the spot at my command. None of us do right here. But our Lord does tell us that there is coming a day for all of His people when glorification and a new body and sinlessness and full, glorious hope where there is no more curse, no more sickness, no more illness will be a reality for all of us. There is full healing in Christ. doesn't mean it's guaranteed right now. It doesn't mean it's guaranteed at my command at this moment. Oh, but in heaven, in heaven when we see Christ and we are with Him. What a hope that comes from this bottomless, this shoreless, this bankless ocean of love that this love of Christ is seen in number four, as you wrote down, it is, it is a saving work. Yes. But with that, and this is almost so redundant, but let me just give you a fifth point here because that leads us now to verse six, heading number five. It is a secure work. 
You know, there's not a whole lot in this world that's secure. (laughs) There's not a whole lot in this world where you can find protection, security, safety. But look at verse 6 right here in our text. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. He bears it, not us any longer. You see verse 6 right there? Who is the active agent performing the cross work of Christ? It's the Father laying the iniquity of us all upon the Son. And the Son voluntarily and actively received it. The Lord is the initiator. He is the placer of our sin upon the servant. Now, I want to bring out right here in verse 6, at the end, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall. Do you see that verb to fall upon Him at the end there? It means to beat with a great violence. To strike with great force. The strong arm of the Lord was coming down in swift, firm judgment upon sin. The language derives from Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. God was the author of that ceremony. The high priest was simply the agent transferring the sins of the people symbolically to the scapegoat. And yet, verse 6 tells us the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. God forensically delivered over the Son for us. What a secure work that all of our sin was imputed to the servant upon the suffering Messiah all of our iniquities fell upon him God did this to the Messiah and consider this maybe just this image with me that when Jesus died when the Messiah died at Calvary the wrath of God was spent justice was satisfied and the Savior absorbed He absorbed, He quenched divine wrath. He absorbed it all. And God would give to the account of sinners who believe the full righteousness of Christ. So you believe in this suffering servant, your sins are credited to Him on the cross. He died and paid it. And by faith, His righteousness is credited to you. The servant suffered and satisfied God's holiness. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And you know what? Maybe you need to be reminded of that. That you, Christian, can rest your weary soul in this work of the Savior. You you can't do anything to add to it. You can't do anything to contribute to it. You can't do anything to keep yourself savingly in the love of God. That's His work. We must persevere. We're going to hear more about that. 
Sunday morning and from the book of Jude to keep ourselves in the love of God. But Christ is the one who holds us. The Father is the one who secures us. Do you need to be reminded of that today? Do you need to be reminded that you can rest in this work at home in your marriage, when you're parenting your children, when you're in the workplace, when you're sharing the gospel with that person, when you've got that moment of temptation that comes your way? Maybe even when you sin and you come before the Lord humbly asking for His forgiveness. Rest your soul in the secure work of the Savior. And with that, what a sweet work it is. What a sweet work it is. Do you see there at the beginning of verse 6? All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. What a good shepherd we have. What a, what a seeking shepherd who is able and capable and available in sweetly and sufficiently saving his lost sheep. He is a seeking Savior. What a great Lord and a great Messiah. The love of Christ is seen in the cross work of Christ. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote a lot on this. He's got a wonderful book on the heart of Christ and the love of Christ and the work of Christ and the cross. Here's what Thomas Brooks said. It was the golden link of love that fastened Christ to His cross. Certainly, the more Christ has suffered for us, the more dear Christ should be to us. The more bitter His sufferings have been for us, the more sweet His love should be to us. The more lofty should be our love to Him. Let a suffering Christ lie nearest in your hearts. For he said, it is better to part with anything and everything in this world than to part with this pearl of great price. What a great love of Christ. And I suppose with all of this, looking at Isaiah 53, looking at this love of Christ and the crosswork of Christ, the obvious question for all who are here, including the children, the boys and the girls, is this. Is this true of you? Has the love of Christ been poured out upon your soul? The first Peter says that He died for us so that He might bring us to God. I love that phrase. You can't bring yourself to God. As I say when I'm downtown, you try to jump to the top of the arch. You'll never get there in your own strength. You could never get to God in your own strength. But God came down to do all of the work necessary to take sinners to heaven. Can you say here today, each one of us, can you say that the Son of God loved me and the Son of God gave Himself up for me? Can you say that? If not, cry out in your heart of hearts to the Savior. He is a sufficient, a willing, and inviting Savior, able to save the worst of sinners. 
Thomas Goodwin was writing on the love of Christ. And as he got to a section on the cross of Christ and the love of Christ working together, here's what Thomas Goodwin said. He said, Christian, what a strong motivation against sin we have in these verses. Why would we have low views of sin? Little thoughts of sin. Not a big deal about our sin. When such a severe work came upon the servant for us. Second, Thomas Goodwin said, Christian, whatever trial, whatever temptation, whatever hardship you're going through, you need to know that Christ endured it and His heart tenderly moves toward you in the trial. He suffered. He can relate to you in your times of affliction. Christian, listen to this. Thomas Goodwin also said, number four, number, number three, in all of our miseries, even when you feel like your strength is failing, you have a friend in heaven. You have a friend in heaven who will help. He will pity. He will protect you. And He is the interceding, the loving the pleading, the keeping Savior. What love of Christ. What an excellent love. What a soul-gripping love. What an infinite love. What a divine love. That you and I can read Isaiah 53 and we can say, here's the crosswork of Christ prophesied in the Gospel of Isaiah, we might call it. And yet what love, what love was shown at the cross. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish Presbyterian minister who himself knew the love of Christ. He wrote on it a lot. His books, his letters are just full of love and passion to God because God first loved him. But Samuel Rutherford knew and he bathed in this great love of Christ. And in one of his letters to a believer, here's what he said. Oh, what love! Christ would not entrust our redemption to angels, to millions of angels. No! He came Himself and in His own person He suffered. He would not give a low and a Base price for us clay dust-like people. He would buy us with a great ransom so as He might sufficiently buy us and no one could ever overbid Him in the market for our souls. Never undervalue the Prince of Love who loved us so much because He gave up all that He had and Himself too so that He might redeem you by His love. And then Rutherford, in that same letter to one of his believing friends, here's what he said. He said, to live on the love of Christ, that is truly to live the life of a king. No greater way to live life than to know the love of Christ. Let's pray. We thank You, O great God,
that You have saved us by putting our sin upon Your Son. What a Redeemer. What a strong and mighty Savior. What a glorious love. What a perfect love. What a divine love. What what a bottomless love of an ocean. Would You satisfy us with the great love of Christ? Even this weekend we pray for the glory of Christ.